Well, uh, we want to uh, turn in our scriptures now in the Word of God to Ezra chapter 3 as we take a respite from our study of the book of Romans. We have been going through the book of Romans this, uh, this year, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today we're going to take a little bit of a side to look into the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 in the Old Testament. It is found before the book of Nehemiah, Ezra the priest, who is here, who comes and he leads a group of individuals. Ezra chapter 3 leads a group of Israelites back from exile after they've been exiled in Babylon and Persia for the past 70 some odd years. He leads them back here after 70 years, over half a decade. And he begins to spiritually prepare them for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the time that God would bring them back, the return of the remnant. In Ezra chapter 3, they come back. And uh, Ezra chapter 2, it lists all of the individuals who have come back. And chapter 3, this is what they did. It reads, Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers and priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God to Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so they set up the altar on its foundations, For they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they celebrated the feasts of booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons, And for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians, and to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers and priests and the Levites of all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. 
All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our Lord in heaven, we pray once again that you would open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that our church is in the process. We have been in the process for probably a couple of months now in the pursuit and the purchase of a church facility. The Lord has blessed us beyond any one individual's plans or abilities or whatever it might be. The Lord has stretched us as a church spiritually and brought us together as a unified church family. And that is by the grace of God. And we as a church, we've been giving you updates and we're prepared to move forward. God has provided enough means. He's provided various things that have come to pass and the agreements that we have. And it seems to me, though, that we've been here before. Those of you who have been here for at least a couple of years, remember that two years ago we also placed a bid on a particular church property right in the center of Bellevue that was being sold by the school district. And we had spent thousands of dollars to study the situation and to come together and to rally together as a church family. And our plans were that we would demolish a part of the building because of its structural integrity or lack thereof, I should say. And then to rebuild. And in the silent bid situation, we submitted our bid to the district and As God would have it, we were the highest bidder. And yet, it was not God's will that our bid was the one that was chosen to purchase the property. And so we lost out on that opportunity. Now, I can't express to you, I still remember the time when we went to the school board meeting. There were a number of us that went there and and we sat and we listened to all of the bids and we learned ours was the highest and we were excited. And then they said, well, but we've chosen this one. And then down came our spirits. And I can't tell you how disappointed I was and how many of us were during that time. And for months afterwards, I asked the Lord, why? Why was it that you brought us so close to be prepared and to come right up to that point of a purchase with plans and lining up an architect and a structural engineer and all of these individuals, a contractor? Why? Why did it not come to pass? And at that time, no one knew why. But in retrospect, as we look back as a leadership Perhaps it was, perhaps it was sort of a practice because as we looked at it, we probably would not have tried so hard for this particular property if it were not for seeing how the Lord might lead in the previous one. I remember before that property, years before that, we had 
had a, a pledge, a capital campaign for another piece of property and the amount came to about 200000 And this time around, it has been about five times that amount. And it was because of that, and because of how the Lord led, perhaps that He was teaching us something through that time of disappointment and discouragement. And like last time, this time again, our church is sort of right on the brink and the closing date on the property is merely about two and a half weeks away. A couple of days after Christmas as the closing date has been moved a little bit further, but it works out well. Two and a half weeks away and everything is lined up and we're eagerly looking forward to how things will come about. But what if, what if it doesn't happen again? What if it doesn't go through? What if the deal falls apart for some reason that's beyond our control like last time? And I know that for many of you, as for us as leaders, it would be an extremely discouraging time, a disappointing time. But that's part of how life is, because in life, everyone faces discouragement. Everyone faces disappointment. The English author Joseph Addison said, quote, Our real blessings often appear to us in the shape of pains, losses, and disappointments. Everyone has disappointments at one time or another, and no one is immune to them. There are people that we see, spouses that are perhaps not faithful or friends who will gossip about you or co-workers who take advantage of you. Maybe your company will lay you off or maybe the doctor gives you awful news about your health. Or maybe that your children don't turn out exactly how you would envision or hope to them. And basically, the best plans that you have, the best dreams... Remain unfulfilled and you have these disappointing times, sometimes extreme disappointment in your life. You look and you say to yourself in retrospect, if only I knew what I know now, I would not have done what I did in the past. Disappointment comes because of unfulfilled expectations or unfulfilled hopes or dreams that are never fulfilled. Disappointing times It happens to everyone, even the greatest of people. Alexander the Great wept when he learned that there were really no more nations or worlds to conquer. John Quincy Adam, our sixth president, wrote in his diary, My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations. Or Cecil Rhodes, who opened up Africa and established an empire, wrote in his dying words, So little done, so much to do. Or the epitaph of a, the famous author, Robert Louis Stevenson, said, quote, Here lies one who meant well, who tried little and failed much. Dr. Jerome Frank of John Hopkins University in Baltimore, he talks about our, quote, assumptive world. In other words, we as people assume things whether or not they are stated. We believe that if we do certain things, people ought to respond in a certain way. We treat them nicely. Our expectation is that they will treat us nicely. If I were to help someone, an elderly lady, bring her, bring her groceries out to her car for some reason, my expectation would be that she would not stomp on my toes or whatever it might be. We have assumptions and sometimes we come across with this thought of entitlement as well. 
We are entitled to certain things and we have certain rights in our life. And if people don't respond in a certain way or people don't do what we think that they ought to do, they don't treat us with love or they don't treat us with respect or they don't do what we want them to do, we fall in disappointment or life simply does not turn out how we would envision or hope or dream. And those things affect how we feel and our spiritual and mental health. And the closer our expectations are to reality, the happier we'll be if one is overly idealistic or have misplaced assumptions or, or excessive expectations of others. There will be greater disappointment. Disappointment often leads to depression and sometimes depression to despair because we've hoped things, we've wanted things so badly and yet they have not come to pass. And in this text today, in the scriptures today, we see the people of Israel coming home. They are coming home and undoubtedly they have expectations, they have hopes and dreams because they've been exiled for some 70 years. Land of Persia, which was once Babylon, and Israel coming home to a city and a temple that has been decimated and overgrown by over half a decade. And probably very discouraged as they set out to rebuild the temple. But the people did three things when they came upon that city and that temple. They renewed their relationship with God during that time first. They renewed their obedience to God And they renewed their praise to the Lord as well, even during this time of difficulty in their life. In the end, we see two responses. Same situation, but two different responses at the very end of the story. So in your mind's eye, let's go back some 2,500 years ago to the time of 537 B.C. And the place is in Jerusalem. Here, thousands of Israelites who have come... They've been given permission by the king of Persia to go back to their homeland to rebuild. It is a time, you see, when they have freedom, when they can go back and establish their own, their own city, their own place, their own place to call home. And you can imagine, there they are making this journey, miles and miles, hundreds of miles across the way and coming as a large caravan and there in the distance they see the city, the city of Jerusalem and excitement is there. All of these people and their clans and their families have been released and they've been given by decree the permission to go back to rebuild and the city of Jerusalem is there in their sights. And as they come closer, as they come closer, they see the state of the city. The walls have been breached. The the walls have been torn down and torched. They come into the city and homes have been looted. The homes have been burned. The the, the things that they once knew or some of those who were older knew were no longer there. But worst of all, they come into that city amidst all of the ruins, amongst all of the buildings that have been smashed and burned by their enemies, the walls that are no longer existing. Worst of all, they come upon the place that once held what? The temple. The glorious temple that Solomon had built. The glory of that temple. They had heard stories about this temple from their parents. Some who had seen the temple years ago, Solomon's temple had been looted. 
It had been looted by the Babylonians and anything of value had been stripped and taken away to Babylon. Everything that was there, no Ark of the Covenant, no altar of sacrifice, no temple implements, nothing but rubble. I can't imagine how discouraging it must have been going back there and all around the city of Jerusalem. The lands around them had their enemies who lived there. Their enemies were in charge of various city-states. The discouragement of going back to homes that were no more. Perhaps it was like the people who went back to New Orleans after, after the hurricanes had come and the city had been flooded. Some cities, some areas of the city completely destroyed. There was nothing left. Homes weren't even existing in some parts. They couldn't find them. No electricity, no water, no garbage services. There was crime. There was sewage. There was disease all over the place. And what would happen in the people of New Orleans? The reaction. The reaction. People reacted in different ways. Some became angry. Some thought of whom they could sue. Some simply cried in their helplessness. And some began to clean up immediately, vowing to get back to work to rebuild the city. And others simply gave up and they said, what's the use? Why should I go back? And they decided they were just going to live someplace else. Disappointment. And people react to disappointment and discouragement in different ways. All you have to do is watch the next season of American Idol. All of those people who are told by Simon that they're no good and they'll come out and what will they do? They don't know what they're talking about. Just wait till I become platinum and I'm going to show them, blah, blah, blah. And some people will become angry and some will cry. They'll just say he's so mean, etc. And they'll just have different reactions. Some will just walk away without saying anything. Disappointment and discouragement comes when our hopes and our expectations aren't fulfilled. People react in different ways when things don't pan out. And when our building project didn't go through last time, or perhaps when we are rejected after applying for a job, job after job after job, or perhaps when we're trying to make it onto a sports team or to get that promotion or perhaps we receive our, our report card back for this quarter and it doesn't come out as we had hoped. Well, how are you going to react? The first thing that the Israelites did, first of three things as we see in this passage, was they made the relationship with God right. They renewed the relationship with God in verses 1 through 6. The scriptures say when they came back, the first thing that they did was they didn't rebuild their homes. Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, etc., verse 3, they set up the altar on its foundations. They built the altar. They built the, 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 central, the central object of, of, of the sacrificial uh, sacrifices that they would be able to make so that they would be able to worship God. And they offered, it says in verse 3, burnt offerings morning and evening because they sought the protection of God. They, they continued to do so and they continued to make offerings and sacrifices, the text says. Verse 5, there was continual burnt offering also for the new moons. And they set up and they did all of these things according to the will of God. It's significant that they completed the rebuilding of the altar first. 
The altar, you see, was the center of their sacrificial, of sacrificial worship. Without the altar, there was no assurance of, no guarantee of forgiveness, no proper worship, no alleviation of guilt, no provision for forgiveness. No access to God and less assurance about God's protection upon them from their enemies. And the altar was a symbolic link between them and how they would bring their sacrifices to God as God had commanded. And so the very first thing they did in their life, in the life of their nation, was that they made their relationship right with God. And so when we're disappointed and things are discouraging... When things don't come out as you might dream, or things come into your life that are unexpected, the first person to run to is God. To call upon God and to make your relationship right with God. To ask yourself, is this because of something that I may have done, God? And God, forgive me if it is. Oftentimes we reap the consequences of our own actions. But sometimes it is simply because of our unrealistic expectations. Our expectations might be too high and sometimes if things don't work out, we blame it on God. We say God is not good or whatever it might be. But it is God who has always been there for us. So we need to run to God and make sure that our relationship with God is right. Because sometimes it might simply be a trial for our own good. To, 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 to mold our character, as it says in James chapter 1, whatever it may be, maybe it might be out of your control and out of my control, but when things don't pan out, we run to God and may make our relationship with God right. And we turn to the Lord. And the second thing they did, not only was to make their relationship with God right, but they renewed their obedience. They did the work that was there that God had called them to do. The Bible says in verse 7, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians. And in verse 8, They began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. They renewed their relationship right with God. They made that right and then they renewed their obedience to do what God had called them to do. They obeyed the word of God. To do and to put together what God had called them to do. And even earlier, you see, I don't know if you noticed, but it strikes me as verse 2, when they did things as it was written in the law of Moses, verse 2. Or verse 4, as it is written, as each day is required. They did it according to the word of God. They were obedient in their sacrifices. And they got to work in spite of the rubble. In spite of the rubble that surrounded them. In spite of the danger from their enemies, in spite of the fact that they were perhaps not, that they didn't have the infrastructure in the city, in spite of the fact that they, they had, they had, they had just come out of exile and one might perhaps assume that they weren't necessarily the wealthiest individuals who had come back to their city, but they, they decided that this is the work. This was the important work. The work of honoring God. They could have given up said, forget it. Why do this? Didn't work out last time. Won't work out this time. This is too much work. I'm going to go and build my house instead. Impossible. We don't have enough money. We've just come out of captivity. It would be easier if we just go back to live with the Persians. We quit. What's the use? 
But instead, they decided to come together, roll up their sleeves, and everyone pitched in. And they organized themselves, as you see in the text, in verse 8 and 9. They organized themselves in, in teams and began clearing away a half a century of overgrown rubble and doing God's will. When our hopes and dreams have disappeared, when things don't seem to be going your way or my way, we make our lives right with God And then what? We press on. We press on in obedience to God. Some say, bag it. I'm tired of failing. I've applied to so many jobs or this is hopeless or what's the use. But don't give up because it's easy to do that. To sit and wallow in self-pity and say, this just won't work out and I'm not going to try anymore and all of that sort of a thing. Maybe these grades aren't exactly what you're expecting. Why apply? Why, why try anymore? Whatever it might be. Or I've been turned down, turned down from this school or that school or whatever it is. We need to get ourselves together and to roll up our sleeves and continue to press on and follow what God would have us to do even though sometimes one door that closes simply means that God will open up another one someplace. Don't let discouragement, you see, sidetrack you to giving up on God. You trip in the race, you pick yourself up. And others will come alongside. And by God's grace, you continue to run that race as if you were to win. To run. Because God never judges you, you see, based on all of your achievements. He judges you upon your faithfulness. For someday we look forward to standing before God and God saying to us, Well done, good and what? Successful servant? Wealthy servant? Well done, good and faithful, um, prestigious servant? Intelligent servant? No. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness to God. In obeying God and following God and pressing on to do what God would call you to do. And not to give up, not to give in. That's what Satan would want you to do. Give up. Ah, this Christian life isn't all it's chalked up to be. Ah, you know, God hasn't blessed me. I've done all these things for him. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's not God's desire for us. God's desire is that we be faithful and he will grant to us victory. Not only, you see, did they make their relationship right with God, they built the altar so that they could worship. They put their hands to the task of honoring God first and following Him in obedience according to the Word of God. And thirdly, it is interesting to note that they renewed their praise and their worship of God, even amidst all of the rubble. Verses 10 and 11. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple... What did they do? The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good for His loving kindness is upon Israel. And the people shouted. This was the first step in the right direction. I mean, they had begun the work, they had finished the first stage, they had laid the foundation, and they celebrated along the way. They celebrated along the way. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, you know, it's a boy, there's the foundation. Those of you who have a home that's been built, you see the foundation is there. I, I, you know, I mean, you, you'd think, I'd think to myself, I'm not sure, you know, it's, uh, the house is not up yet. Let's celebrate later. But here they celebrated the, what God had done along the way. And they celebrated and worshipped even though it was simply the first step because for them, it was a big step. It was a big step for them. It was easy. You see, it's easy, you see, sometimes to be grateful and to give God praise when things are going well. And God has blessed you with ease in life and made things smooth and granted to you a lot of blessings, whether it be material blessings or maybe immaterial. It's easy to give thanks to the Lord when your grades are good in school or when your job is going well and you've got a promotion. It's easy to say, as they said, God is good. What about when things aren't going so well? Able to be grateful to God even in those times? To sing and to worship God still? To think that, you know what, even what I have, even what I have, I am grateful for. It may not be what I expected, but God knows what is best for me. And I am going to praise and worship God today. My job might not be the best job in the world, but I am going to worship my God today. My grades might not be the best this quarter, but I am going to worship my God today. My friends or my co-workers or my family or whatever, I have difficulty with them, but I'm going to worship my God today. My finances aren't, aren't lining up too well. In fact, I'm in dire straits and I'm very worried about them, but I'm going to worship my God today because God will provide for my needs. What else might there be? That we might say, I am going to worship my God today and every day because He is my God. And God is good for His loving kindness is upon us, His children. Us, His children, verse 11, to say, for God is good. I even have whatever it might be. I have a roof over my head. I have food on the table and I am going to worship my God today. But you see, sometimes discouragement and disappointment can come can come because our perspective is wrong. We need to have our perspective right. You notice in the end of the account, it says in verses what 12 and 13, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. And many, while many shouted aloud for joy. So you have some, you have a large number of people who are shouting to God and praising God and you have a large number of people who are older who remember the old temple of Solomon's day who are weeping. Same context, same situation, different backgrounds and different memories. Those who were older saw the grandeur of Solomon's temple and this temple that they were building was much smaller. But for those who had not known the older temple, it was it was a time of joy. It was a time of worship. Sometimes disappointment and discouragement comes to those who have memories of the past that are so strong they live in their past. You hear some people talk and they'll say, I remember when things were like this and how things were so much better and things used to be better when this and it was a lot better in this job or that context or when our family was like this or whatever it might be and it brings great sadness. And it brings great discouragement because they live in the past. 
I remember the glory days when I used to be on this sports team and I did so well or when my income was this high or whatever it might be. It's always in the past and all it does is rob one of the joy that is for them today. Rather than giving thanks to God, they live in the past. And those that are saying those things, sometimes it is good to remember those things because we learn so many lessons from the past of things we ought to do today. And it is good for those who rejoice in the present to learn as well and to hear those things because it helps them to appreciate all the more of what they have today. But to dwell and live in the past robs one of joy and the celebration of God's goodness. Rather than giving thanks to God and praising God for what they have now, some were weeping. Some were weeping when there should have been joy. There's so much, you see, in our life to give thanks to God today that we have so much to be blessed by. And when things don't turn out like we expect, God still has a way. For it may be a means by which He may be directing you and I in our life. I remember when I was in high school, I wanted to go to... um, I wanted to go out of state for college. I wanted to get away from home. Uh, I wanted to go to UC Berkeley. Might be interesting to know. So did Pastor Henry. I I didn't know that. But uh, we we had, you know, great grades. We had decent SAT scores. We had a lot of extracurricular activities and music and tennis and student government and church ministries and clubs and things like that. I mean, it was all lined up. And in fact, I, I was always going here and there and my parents would complain that I was always out, out of the house too much and, and I wasn't spending enough time at home and they'd always say all these things. And, and all I knew was that if I, if I managed to get good grades, well, my parents wouldn't be able to say anything. So I, I, I did my best to appease them in that. And, but yeah, I applied and my dream was to go. And you see, I, I knew about missions work and I thought about missions and I thought to myself, you know what, there's all these individuals who are going out to the poor countries of the world. My dream was, boy, all of these people who are, who are, who are the wealthy are being neglected. And I was going to go and be an engineer and get an MBA and I was going to evangelize the wealthy. And that was my thought when I was a high schooler. And so I thought to myself, that's how I'll do it. That was my plan. That was my dream. I filled out all the applications and I thought, man, this is going to be great. I applied there because at that time it was one of the two top public universities in the nation. And so I applied and little I know in a relatively short period of time, I got a nice letter saying, I'm sorry, you know, you can't get in because, you know, whatever it might be. And it was a rejection letter, and I was so discouraged. I'll tell you how discouraged I was. I I thought, man, this is... And, you know, Pastor Henry, I didn't realize until years later we were both in seminary. He told me that that was his dream, too. He was going to go to UC Berkeley, and, you know, he was going to do all of these things, and he wanted to be a millionaire by the time he was age 30. And here we're way past that. This was the first step of God's leading uh, through discouraging times in my life. And, you know, I went in and, of course, that was part of my ulterior motives, you know, uh, wrong motives and first step in God's leading and in, in bringing me to be humble about certain things. And math was my favorite subject. And I remember my first quarter, my first quarter. I had a relatively easy math class and I took that and took it with a grain of salt. And I just remember going into that final, that first quarter and failing it. 
And I remember crying and I was so discouraged because it was my easiest subject. And then I struggled in another, another math class later on, differential equations, because I couldn't conceive in my mind four, five, seven dimensions. And it just confused me. And, and I went into my professor's office. I said, I just don't understand how something could be four-dimensional and seven-dimensional and, and all of these things. And he said to me, well, maybe you ought to consider not going engineering. And that discouraged me even further. And I'll tell you, by God's grace, he led me into engineering at the UW. And over the last year, I really thought to myself, what does God really want me to do? What is my heart? Do I really want to make, you know, chips for cell phones or whatever it might be? And in my heart, I really loved the Word of God and I wanted to study the Bible. And the Lord led me to seminary and I was very much afraid because I thought to myself, boy, what is my father going to say? What is my father going to say? After all, they, they helped me through most of my college expenses and things like that. But by the grace of God, he gave me approval. And I thought at first, what a waste all of those years all those years studying engineering and the co-op job and things like that. But it's only in retrospect, years down the road, I saw how God used that in helping me to land jobs so I could pay my way through seminary and how He was able to help me use those, those things in my life to be able to work with computers and, and to teach me, even, through though, even though so many of the classes that I took seemed to be irrelevant, but college teaches you about self-discipline as well. You know, and I learned all of those things, and all of you who have been through college and have seen how God perhaps has have led, have led you through life, you look back in retrospect and you can say, now I can see how this has all come about. God's leading in my life through times of discouragement, through times that were difficult, that, that, that I've learned so many things from God and how God has been with me and how God has led me and to be able to see that in your life and you look back at life and you can praise God because of that. And if you didn't pick yourself up during those times and pray and run to God, where would you be now? So we don't live in the memories of our past we accept them and we accept our present circumstances and we pursue God in obedience to say God is good and because God is good, I can worship my God today, even during discouraging times. The sad part about this story is that they do, these people in Ezra's time, they do become discouraged and they stop the work on the temple and it isn't until Ezra comes later on. This was first done here by Zerubbabel. But Ezra comes, Ezra the priest comes later on and exhorts the people, let's get back to work. Let's get back to work and complete the job that God has called us to do. When we lost the bid two years ago, I often, as I mentioned to you, asked the Lord why. And it isn't until now that I can see perhaps we wouldn't be taking this great step of faith if it were not for God. And for what God had brought us through as a church. But we want to hold life and all these things loosely because we don't know how things will turn out. And just like in our life too, we don't know sometimes how things will come out for our studies or our jobs or our grades or whatever it might be. And during those times, God calls us to be sure that our relationship with Him is right first of all. 
that we walk in obedience and pursue God and that every day we can say no matter what day it is today I will worship my God for God is good for his loving kindness is upon me forever and that should be our prayer let's pray our father in heaven you are good and father may we cling to that Lord, I know some here have been through very difficult times and you, Father, know the pain that that they have faced in the past. You know, for perhaps, Lord, the pain that they face now. You know, Lord, the struggles that they are going through. And we pray, God, that you would especially be with them. Lift them up. May you grant to them renewed strength. May you give them a vision of you, hope for the future. Why? Because you are a good God and your loving kindness is with us. And we pray, O God, that you would comfort and strengthen, that you would grant a new spirit to encourage the discouraged. No matter, Father, what will happen in the future, we pray, O God, that we might worship you, walk in obedience with you, and that, Lord, we might always be faithful. That we might hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' precious name, amen.